Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Hello, hello, my little fruit salads, every last one of you. It's your old pal Stanley on the way here to talk a little bit about this podcast is what they tell me it is. Wow. How you doing, boys? It's good to see you. Stanley on the way. You might remember me. I was in that movie, uh, My Fair Lady. Remember that mm. one? You uh, saw it. I- uh, Jason saw it. I, I haven't seen it, Mr. Holloway. Yeah, I, I was actually in a production of my family. Ah, it's wonderful. I don't care. Um, boys, uh, I'm suddenly Scottish a bit. So uh, I'm gonna just going to assume this is correct. You've seen me in uh, 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 Brief Encounter, and you saw mm-hmm. me in Passport to Pimlico, and you're yeah. familiar with my work in My Fair Lady. So I'm glad, basically, that I have been remembered by two fellas. Oh. You're very pleasant. Yeah. Well, you know, that's just the Stanley Holloway guarantee you get when he comes over to your house. So I gotta go, fellas. I'll talk to you later. Bye! He didn't say anything about this week's movie. He didn't. Is he alive in 1948? I guess he was. That's when Passport to Pimlico was filmed. But I bet you he was busy, so he didn't see it. Well, you know, Jason, we didn't all have, a, you know, a spare dime to go to the picture shows back in the day. No, or uh, a spare uh, uh, sixpence? Would that have been a lot of money to go to a movie back then? Sure. I mean, maybe it was a really good movie. British people, let us know. A sixpence yeah. or a crown? Yeah, what, what What would be an appropriate price to pay for a film in 1948? Please let us mm. know. Maybe it was a uh, loaf of bread. Ooh, an entire loaf of bread. Mm. Well, let's and not go crazy. More bread. The good, the good war bread with molasses and sawdust. Mm. War, war bread. That sounds like a pretty oh. cool wrestling gimmick. I'm not gonna lie. You know what? There's a time I bet you it could have worked, and it would have been between about 1919 and 1933. The peak of wrestling dominance. That's right. I'm Brendan. <laughs> Back when it was still real. I'm Jason, and this is a podcast called For Screen and Country. And Jason. What we do in this podcast is we take a look at the BFI Top 100. That's the British Film Institute Top 100 British films of all British time conceived in the British, the very British year of 1999, year of our Lord, amen, all sins forgiven, etc. And as we know, the the British uh, Empire is the most official culture on the planet. So we have their blessing, I, I have to assume. We do. We have a note here from Alan British. We filed the paperwork, the the 67B stroke 7, that we submitted in the proper spot uh, multiple times over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
And uh, Alan has a message here, and it's it's uh, it says, um, "Good on you, chaps." Very British. Oh, oh what a what a good fella. <laughs> Is that sorry, Alan's dog? dog? Yeah, no, that's just that's just the house dog. Uh, goes crazy occasionally. Oh. So quiet in a moment. Well, that that you know what, Jason? Though that just means that this is a very special episode, and he's very excited about it. He is, and also I'm sort of like trying to recreate Pink Floyd's oh, dogs. Dear. Yeah. Oh, shut up, dog. <laughs> Tonight's podcast is brought to you by Alexander Keith's. It's the beer and, I'm drinking right now. Alexander and angry Keith's. dogs, angry dogs—they <laughs> bark for no reason. Someday he'll get what he wants, but today's not that day. You can't always get what you want, Jason, but we can get what we want because we are going, we are still with the list. We are, we are moving forward as scheduled. Um, We are are talking about a film that is another film that is quite high on the list. Mm. Uh, Number nine, as a matter of fact, and number nine on this list is a little movie called The Red Shoes. But before we go into The Red Shoes... We should talk a little bit a little bit about last week's movie, Brief Encounter, because we do have some comments to read. Let's briefly go over those comments. <laughs> comments. We got comments for you. From the people. For the movie, Brief Encounter, a.k.a. Underwear Meetings. I thought you were going to say, for, I don't know why, but I thought you were going to be like, The Bridge on the River Kwai Jr. <laughs> Not like Guinness wasn't in that movie. Lawrence of Arabia Babies. <laughs> now, what would that show be like, Jason? Uh, I, uh, I'm, no, no, it just, no, that's all I can say to you. Lawrence no. Babies, they travel the desert for years. The only kid show that teaches about the values of colonialism. So when the mom comes in, is it just Alec Guinness as Faisal, but you only see his legs? <laughs> I thought, why am I doing Sean Connery? I thought I told you kids to be good. He was the only one that was available. He insisted. You're doing a show about colonialism and you need a adult figure. I'll do that. I'll do it. I should have been Obi-Wan. <laughs> now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. I once played an Arab but didn't change my accent. All right. Has Sean Connery played an Arab? He sure has. Which well, movie? Uh, the Wind and the Lion. Right, right. And he was a Spaniard in Highlander. Yeah. Which, I, I, t- I mean, that's the worst one. Nobody nobody ever bought that. Because why bother? I mean, that's as, that, that's almost uh, as bad as buying Christopher Lambert as a Scotsman. Like, it was... Who cast that movie? I mean, I love that movie. But cocaine. Who cast the, yeah, cocaine, cocaine cast, cast that movie. That movie. All Jesus. Right. Jason, we've got comments to read. About we should Highlander? probably get to them. No, but oh, Brief Encounter. Okay. Uh, what's our first comment, Jason? Our first comment is from serial commenter Andrew Littlefield, who says, I enjoy it, but I don't see it as the greatest romance film ever. Uh, Casablanca much? He didn't say much. I prefer Lean's later epics, but it's worth a look. I, I believe you're underselling this movie, sir, but I respect your opinion. I, I fucking adored this movie, and this is the first time I ever saw it, so it, Same. Just, it just knocked me right in the, in the, the field nads. <laughs> By the way, also, but Casablanca, fucking wonderful. So, no, 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 yeah, I, I get why you think that. And they were saying, but also, Casablanca, total piece yeah, of shit. Fuck that movie. <laughs> Who's Humphrey Bogart think he was acting in a movie? He's no Ashton Kutcher. And look, look how mean they were to the poor Nazis. Jesus. And Sam. And Sam. 
so another serial commenter, Adam Pellman, Ooh. says, Wonderful film. So emotional. I really love Lean's early Noel, Noel Coward adaptations. And while this is probably not my favorite of the bunch, it might be the best. So, you know, that's how you agree with us. <laughs> you pass. <laughs> Let me live in my bubble. <laughs> uh, what do we got here? We got uh, uh, Louise Camara mm-hmm. says... It has a lot of competition for, quote, greatest romance, even from within David Lean's own filmography. Dr. Zhivago. Ooh, we got two bracket questions in, uh, in, in two comments. You guys, you guys are great. It's not even Christmas. No. But it, it is well worth the watch. David Lean has another very similar movie called The Passionate Friends, told from the point of view of a wife who can't give up her affair. It's on Criterion Channel right now all right lewis you work for criterion channel slipping in a plug there <laughs> come on uh, it's not cr- like i've been buying i've been buying criterion dvds since i was a teenager victoria stewart says i like it but i don't love it notorious is much more dreamy slash swoony romantic for me i've never seen notorious yeah. but it's a hitchcock movie no no notorious i think that might be also uh, a criterion are you sure she's not, or she could be talking about the Notorious B.I.G. Uh, I, I like it. Biopic. She was very vague with his gender, but I, I like it, but I don't love it. Notorious is much more dreamy. I sweet. Oh, no, maybe, he's talking, maybe she's talking about Tupac. And then she's saying that Notorious is much more dreamy, swoony, romantic. Notorious B.I.G. Yeah, much is, more. Is, is more romantic than Tupac Shakur. Well, I mean, that's common opinion. I think so, yeah. I, I think he was a big teddy bear, ultimately. Uh, Brian Keeper, or Kuiper. Brian, Brian's a keeper. He's a keeper. Uh, a beautiful. Why did you do George Bush? <laughs> not gonna say, not gonna do it, but I just want to say this guy, this Brian Keeper, real keeper. God bless America. It's all bad, bad. Uh, Brian says a beautiful small masterpiece. Lean is better known for his massive epics, but films like these prove he was a master storyteller at heart, whether working on a giant canvas or a small one. I know, and that's that's one of the things I guess that blew me away is that like, oh wow, this guy could do anything. He could he could abuse actors into uh, never working with him again, but in doing so, he ended up with fantastic art. Tell was them. it was it worth it? Of course, I think so. Yeah, he told <laughs> told them to go make love and write better music. Yeah, and it worked. exactly. <laughs> well, that's that's actually pretty good advice. I'll say that's a good one. Is, is, is that just him politely saying go fuck yourself? <laughs> well, make love to other people. Oh, so okay. he's like saying go fuck herself. Go make love to the tuba and write some better music. <laughs> jf i love how (laughs) lean it is oh my jay it's just a brisk sad realistic story and i love how the two characters play their parts i think it makes a great double feature with the third man both star trevor howard one takes place before and then one takes place after world war ii both are black and white english movies etc i like to imagine the main actor in the third man is alec bouncing to vienna after his time in johannesburg well we'll we'll debate that theory when we talk about the third man yeah whenever that happens to come up yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Jay. We appreciate it. <laughs> yes, thank you. Brianna Bertoglio, which I love. Mm-hmm. That's a great name. Love it. Um, I watched it a month ago and have a controversial take on it. I don't think it was the doctor's first rodeo. I think he is playing her, and he's done this with married women before. I'm sure that was not the intent, but in a death of the author world, I read it that way. 
I thought it was so romantic as a teenager, but now I see how deep we are in her POV and how she is blinded by her feelings. But as an outside observer, I am deeply suspicious. You know, it's funny. I hadn't actually thought of that, but yeah, I think she's totally right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's not that guy's first rodeo. Now that I think about it, like you just, yeah, he's been through this before. I think you mean rodeo. But yeah, that that is a testament to, yeah, that this movie is so ingrained in the perspective. Would you of- say it's an Old Testament or a New Testament? New, got it. No fire. Moving on. All right, Macy Gray. Nope. Oh, sorry. Macy Allen, which if I was going to make a mashup would be like, I try to walk away and oh, I, 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 I'm not supposed to make movies anymore. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to be like. No, nah, it's bad. It's Macy, bad. I, I was thinking in the spirit of the BFI, you would say like Macy Gray and like Nancy Allen. No, I was going Woody because that's the only Allen I can go to, unfortunately. Yeah. No Karen Allen? She's pretty cool. Yeah. She didn't she didn't uh marry a thirteen year old as far as I know. No, and that's that's just the that's just the thing that we know he did, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh Macy says, I love the structure of the film and the music, as we ourselves discussed, really heightens the emotional depth of what otherwise might have been a rather ordinary relationship. Isn't that how all relationships feel to those involved? From the outside, love can seem unremarkable or perhaps sweet, but inside the emotional turmoil can be like a whirlwind or a runaway train. Runaway train ain't never coming back. That was my editorial. Got season tickets to get my buddy back. That's <laughs> <laughs> not how season tickets work. You don't, you don't know football <laughs> like I do, you motherfucker. Although the heartbreaking love story hits me pretty hard, it's the kindness and understanding of her husband that turns me to a pile of mush. I don't... I, I wondered though, because I, I maybe you read it differently than I do, Macy. But I, I got the sense that it was less his kindness and understanding, and, and more just a general detachment. Like <laughs> I, I, think, I, 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 I got think some of it was just like he just maybe didn't want to emotionally engage with I, it. I think she means the last moment, though. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Where he says, "Like I'm just glad you're back." Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. Yeah. So maybe don't be such an asshole, Jason. Okay, I'm just I'm sorry. I'm cynical. <laughs> uh, Macklin loosely Millman. Ooh, says, we have an aristocrat that listens. I am finding it fascinating that most movies that are considered the most romantic almost always end with the couple that we are following not together. I mean, Brief Encounter. These are all spoilers, by the way, guys. <laughs> I mean, Brief Encounter, Casablanca, In the Mood for Love, etc. Do we just find love lost the most romantic thing of all? You make a very good point, Your Grace. Uh, Do they end up together in When Harry Met Sally? Oh uh, shit! I don't know because that's like one of the best romantic. That's like I, one of the best romantic movies of all time. I don't time. think I've ever watched that movie start to finish. You should. I mean, it's no Jaws, but <laughs> okay. So <laughs> your context means that you, you know, it's worse that you haven't seen Jaws. To yeah. anyone else, sound like you just said, <laughs> it's no Jaws. Well, when Harry Met Sally is no Jaws. It's like it's like it's the kind of movie I want to watch. Listen, and the listen. movie I want to watch looks like Jaws, L- but the movie I don't want to watch looks like When Harry Met Sally. Now, if you tell me there's a fucking shark in When Harry Met Sally, I'm down. Listen, I've seen the trailer for Jaws. I've read the plot <laughs> summary. I know of it, and you, my friend, are no Jaws. <laughs> I own the junior novelization of the film Jaws. Jaws Jr., a Michael Caine tale. Why am I here? (laughs) All right, money. All right, it paid for my cottage. What do we got? Last comment. Last comment. Fran Diamond. Shine bright. Absolutely wonderful film. My only issue is the voiceover. Mm. 
I generally hate voiceover, and it's quite integral to the story, but I can deal with it, because everything else in this movie is perfectly done. I actually really liked the voiceover. That was one of the things I was surprised by, because the voiceover also, like... Like you said, it was different. Like, mm. it was kind of kind of worked like your brain works. Like, oh, I wish you were dead. Oh, no, I don't. That's terrible. I get where she's coming from. But, like, mm. um, that was the thing of what, what got me about this movie is that in, in lesser hands, it could have been bad. It, yeah. it, it could have been very distracting. And, and I imagine for Fran, obviously, just the whole... The whole trope, I suppose, is probably distracting for her. I, I'm, not, I'm not a big fan of the trope either, no, to be honest. No, I mean, and, and it, it's often very lazy when yeah. it's used, right? It's used just to make up for the fact that you didn't get to shoot coverage or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, in, in this movie, it just feels so genuine to my ears uh, that I, I have no problems with it. Well, and I mean... the structure of the movie goes. I mean, yeah, the framing device is her thinking in her head what yeah. she would confess to her husband. Yeah, telling right? her husband the story, but just telling it to him in her own head. Like, yeah. That's, yeah, like planning it. Yeah. Which I gotta say, if the husband sticks around for that whole story she's got planned, he he, I mean, he's a great man. Yeah. Jason, we come to the end of the comments. We're going to compare this movie now. This is number two on the BFI, so mm-hmm. you know we're gonna get something big. AFI Top One Hundred Number Two Film is The Godfather. Mm-hmm. That's a tough choice, but not really. Okay. Brief encounter all day, every day. Absolutely, one hundred percent. I like The Godfather. Godfather is a classic film, and it is an interesting watch. But if you said to me, which of these two movies would you rather watch right now? I'll watch Brief Encounter every time. I am floored. I'm floored. I don't like. I came into this thinking this was a shoe in when 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 it came to you. I knew you liked the Brief Encounter a lot, but I'm still surprised here. No, you, I mean, and, and, and that's nothing against Godfather. Godfather is a fantastic movie. <laughs> nothing against the Godfather. It's, it's Godfather. okay. Yeah, it's okay. You know, it's a, it's a competent film. But... Do you think The Godfather Part Two is better? That's the thing. I th- those two movies are so like hand in hand to me that I, I the idea of picking one of them just seems ridiculous. That's like when it's... people ask me, you know, uh, Godfather two or Godfather three. I'm exactly. like, well, they're, they're so they're, they're similar, so even. They're so it's it, it's all basically one big long movie, right? Especially if you get the that weird re edited version, the Godfather saga. Sure, sounds great. Yeah, no, they did that. They took the movie and they re edited all three movies into chronological order mm-hmm. so it starts off with like robert de niro's godfather 2 shit and then turn eventually he turns into marlon brando you know what yeah. you've convinced me yeah i'm on your side yeah i think brief encounter yeah i have nothing again the godfather is obviously a fucking bona fide classic five-star movie but yeah. i mean this was so good yeah. this was like everything this is like if i showed someone an old movie someone yeah. who didn't generally care for them yeah. this would be something i would show this is this is a go-to this, this, this is like 39 steps casablanca and you know a few, a couple, maybe a couple others we talked about. Kane, maybe. I, like I mean, good movie. Yeah. I probably wouldn't show someone Saturday night and Sunday morning. Yeah. You know? And Godfather is a hard place to start because Godfather is like a three-hour movie. It's it's very dense. It's, it, there's a lot going on. Yeah. But Brief Encounter is just a little bit briefer. A little bit briefer, especially mm-hmm. for David Lean. Mm-hmm. But Jason, we talked about that. We need to move on to this week's episode because we have a big movie to discuss. We're talking about the Red Shoes.
That's right, folks. Number nine on the BFI Top 100, The Red Shoes, our second film. And it's been a while, actually, since we talked about the first one. Uh, but this is our second film directed by Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, uh, collectively known as The Archers. Wait, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. I thought we were watching The Red Shoe Diaries, the TV series starring David Duchovny from the 90s. It was like an erotic shit. No, that's that'll definitely one. be on uh, and now for something completely, completely similar, right? I assume so. I assume so. I assume there's some sort of connection, but that's that's what I watched. And this uh, this film is far more pornographic. Oh, can you just give me one moment, just to well, by a moment, can, I mean two hours and fifteen minutes, and I'm just gonna just quickly go watch this. Oh, sure, go ahead. Just, just wait here. Okay. Okay, I'm back. I'm ready. I'm ready oh, for this. I, I got notes. I got everything. All right, well, we can proceed then, Jason. We can talk about this movie, the second film from uh, Powell and Pressburger, The Archers, as it were. Um, Wait, we the, have the second of ours or the second that they made or both? Second the film they ever touched with human hands. No, this is the second film on the list of theirs that we've talked about. Yes. Uh, because the first one we talked about was quite some time ago when we talked about Black Narcissus. Yes. Um, but this one is The Red Shoes, and it stars Moira Shearer as Victoria Page, our lead dancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marius Goring as Julian Craster, her star-crossed lover. Yes. Anton Walbrook, the wonderful Anton Walbrook, as Boris Lermontov, the very stern uh, producer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have a bunch of people that were actually uh, just dancers, not actors. So we have... Leonid, uh, and well, these names are going to be tough. Leonid <laughs> Messine playing Grisha, the, uh, yes. the the choreographer, I guess. Or, yeah, I guess he's the choreographer. Um, Robert Heltman is playing Ivan Bolslowski. Um, we have the return of Esmond Knight playing Livy Montague. Our old pal. Our old pal, Esmond Knight. We have Albert Basserman as Sergei Ratov, the older gentleman who is the advisor to uh, Lermontov. And last but not least, we have another uh, real dancer, uh, Ludmila Cherina as Irina Boronskaya. She's the uh, dancer who gets replaced early in the film. All right. So right out of the gate, we got to say, don't know about you, Brendan, but uh, uh, Martin, uh, or sorry, Marius Goring, who plays uh, Craster, looks like uh, a distant relative of Joe Latrulio. <laughs> okay. I just had to I get thought, that out before I forgot. <laughs> I thought he looked like um, a Nazi from The Sound of Music. Yeah. Oh, he could have done that. Totally. I mean, his name is Goring, for Christ's sake. <laughs> so um, what's interesting, though, is that last week we talked about a movie that's very high on the list as well, Brief Encounter. Yes. Um, and this is, this was number two, this one's number nine. Um, and they also were filmed kind of at the, well, I mean, the last one was 1945. It was right at the, right about the time when the second world war ended. And this is only about three years after, um, so close to when the war, second world war ended that I believe, uh, one of the stories behind the scenes on this movie is that they had one of the first like meals post war rations. Mm. <laughs> 
So that was like that was like while they were on the set, everyone was so delighted to be getting a meal and not have to worry about war rations for once. Oh, wouldn't that um, have been nice? <laughs> yeah, we were still dealing with it today. What the fuck? <laughs> but Jason, if you could sum this movie, uh, the, the, sum this plot up, uh, what do you, what would you say the plot of this film is? The plot of this movie, I believe, can be boiled down to a woman is not allowed to do two things at once, so she gets to choose, and her choice, her choice is mortal <laughs> okay but that's but that's seriously that's really what this movie is for uh by by the end of it i thought that it was like this this woman is trying to lead the life she wants to live she wants to dance but she also wants to love and there's forces that are trying to pull her apart from a world that includes both those things both those things apparently are mutually exclusive mm-hmm. and at some point she has to choose and her choice is a mortal one. Dun, dun, dun. And scene. <laughs> yes, because this is a, this is a, this is a giant movie. Like, and I'm not even talking just in terms of length. This is a dense, another really dense movie. Like there is a lot of stuff going on here. Um, I think at the heart of it, we have like a, a, a triangle. I want to say a love triangle, but it's kind of a love triangle that we haven't really encountered too much in movies. So we have Vicky at the top of this triangle and yes. we have, you know, Lermontov, this guy on the left and, uh, you know, Craster, Julian Craster, this guy on the other side. And the thing, which, the thing here that makes it so much different is, yes, while Julian, they both love Victoria in a way, um, you always get the sense that Lermontov's love is because he ha- he is such he is a huge control freak. Right. Yes. He is the oh, producer absolutely. of this huge ballet company. He's basically molded both of these people. Um, one a dancer, one a composer. He's molded both of them, and when they fall in love with each other, he he in his world there is no there is no, there should be nothing on your brain except dance, or nothing on your brain except music. You know what I mean? Is like that, it's like that is a variable that is brought into the equation of of putting on shows that he does have that he has no direct control over is their love, right? Yeah, and so when exactly. they don't show up for something because they're out canoodling in a in a goddamn uh, horse and carriage, you know that's a problem to him because yeah. it means that he they're not under his purview at that moment. No, he is, and, and yeah, he's like a giant control freak. Which, hmm. like, when I was watching this movie at first, I kind of thought, oh, is he sort of secretly? kind of in love with victoria but he's like hiding his own feelings because he doesn't want that to be the case because he doesn't think love has a place and i'm watching it i'm like no that's not what's happening at all he has no emotion whatsoever for victoria (laughs) i think he he might even a little bit like i think there's some part of him that wouldn't mind taking a run at her but also i think the desire of him to put on a show and to and to stage the best production he can takes precedence over anything else, whether it's love or not. So the love's almost not even relevant because his drive to put on a show is such. And and like obviously he wants to put on a particular type of show because when he uh, they do the red shoes and then once she leaves, he does not stage it again until she returns because yeah. in his mind the show doesn't work without her. So he's not even going to try. But I don't know that it's like a I don't I don't think it's any type of romantic love though because. I think not, not anything deep. The way he's like he's molded her into a star. I think he basically reads it as you know this other guy, this Julian guy, is trying to take away part of me. Yes, yes, because he's trying he's, to steal her away. Yeah, because he's basically molded her 
to be as close to you know what what he is as possible. Um, this is this this whole thing. I mean, we should note right now it's called the Red Shoes. It's based on a Hans Christian Andersen story oh, yeah. with the, under the same name. Um, and basically, the the basic story of the Red Shoes is there's a young woman, uh, and I mean the 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 source material, the Hans Christian Andersen tale. Um, it's about a young woman who sees a pair of shoes in a shop window. Uh, she's offered them by this demonic like shoemaker guy. Uh, she she puts them on, and then suddenly she you know she wants to dance. She's dancing, and then suddenly she's like, okay, I don't want to I don't want to dance anymore. I want to I want to run off with my boyfriend. But no matter where she goes, the shoes just keep her dancing, and they just keep her dancing. Yeah. And finally, she gets to the point of exhaustion, and she says, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. Just cut my feet off. Like I I just I would rather have my feet cut off than deal with this anymore. And as soon as that happens. She dies, and the shoes are basically given to the next victim. Haha, and it continues on. It's like that show, Dead Man's Gun, but with shoes. <laughs> yes, that <laughs> reference. <laughs> um, uh, and if anybody out there is like me, they had maybe not heard of this Hans Christian Andersen story specifically, but they have seen the Simpsons episode where Lisa is given a pair of uh, shoes designed by Professor Frank that caused basically the same thing to happen. That is pretty funny. I bet that's where they got it from. Yeah, I would I would assume so. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, basically, you know, right off the bat, um, I kind of didn't know that. And I, I I will admit right now, I listened to the commentary track on the Criterion channel because I thought, oh, was, look at this guy over here, Mr. Smarty Pants, listening to the Criterion commentary track. Oh, look at me. I'm so goddamn smart because I watch movies and listen to Martin Scorsese jerk off into the microphone. Oh. I'm done. You good? You good? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Okay. Um. So anyway, fuck. That was uh, Jason. You, you you get some issues you need to work through. I think. Oh, I gotta um, talk to my wife. Oh. So yeah, I listened to the commentary track, and they were talking a lot about. The, apparently, there is this thing in ballet where, like, there's a there's a school of thought that's like, oh, the music is more important. While some people say it doesn't matter what music is being scored, it's all about the dancing. So right off the bat, when you get these people that just like lunge into the theater. For this big performance yeah, at the beginning really of the energetic. movie, really very energetic. Very energetic. Want to see? He like he like climbs over Julian climb climbs over the fucking just benches and just plops down and like lays down and then is like assaulted from both sides and crammed into the middle because he's an asshole. He is he is more so at the beginning of the film I'd say. Yeah, because he's he's a kid. He's a student. He's you yeah. know he's still in school. He's writing music like a rebel. You know. I mean, in the film, he's a kid. He's he's 35 in this movie. The actor is 35 years old. Um, but he, yeah, so right away we get this whole thing where, like, uh, these these kind of rambunctious kids are excited because their professor is going to play his music at this at this ballet, whereas these two other uh, hilariously snobby people, which I, I thought they were great. <laughs> I wanted to see more of them. Um, but they're like they're very much like, well, of course, the, the music is going to be good. This dancer wouldn't dance if the music was terrible. Don't you know who she is? <laughs> oh, so we have this kind of like conflict, which is interesting because he like Julian becomes like a composer and, you know, or he is a composer, but he ends up being a composer for this ballet company. While Vicky ends up being the dancer. And it's interesting that they introduce that whole like back and forth between that aspect when those are the two that are going to like fall in love in this movie. 
it's it's like Romeo and Juliet, man. It's two different worlds coming together, two worlds that would never meet that hate each other, dance and music. They just they despise each other because uh, they're so different and and opposite to each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is this is breaking down barriers. This movie. So this movie is gorgeous. Oh man, I mean you this... cannot you cannot complain about a Powell and Pressburger movie. After we saw Black Narcissist, I was sold. I mean, the got movie was so beautiful, and this you know just amps that up. Just pillar to post, just bright, like beautiful Technicolor. Yeah. Um. Just. All over. There is not. There is not a single shot in this movie where you're like, where you think for one second that it wasn't meticulously laid out. Like everything back then, you have to understand. Like color was still a relatively new technology, and when they would use it, they made sure they used every color because mm-hmm. they had them. And and you see it on screen. It's just it's it's lush. It's it's gorgeous. And the restoration, the Criterion restoration, is also fantastic. So it just it really pops. Yeah, and you can probably thank. Michael Powell for that because I learned a little bit about the difference between Powell and Pressburger. Mm. Powell was Powell, Michael Powell. He was kind of the wild one. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was kind of the rebel. While All Pressburger, right. Pressburger was more of like the deep thinker and more. Yeah, he was he, a stuffed up nerd. He did, yeah, look at me. I'm Emil Pressburger. Is that his name? Emil and Emerald. Emmerich. 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 Like Roland yeah. Emmerich. Was sure. Roland Emmerich named after. Emmerich Pressburger? <laughs> uh, I'm going to go ahead and say no, but weirder things have happened. Yeah. But you don't Powell usually give was... your kids a given name, but whatever. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Powell was uh, was a, a little bit a little bit crazier, a little bit wilder. He he did a lot of things that... Uh, and then Pressburger would like rein him in and be like, okay, does this matter to the story? Does this help the story move forward? And he'd be like, no, I guess not. <laughs> so, but... Um, Powell was also, uh, speaking of the director's sort of it, Powell was also known as being a bit difficult. Um, mm-hmm. And that's only because, much like, uh, I want to say much like Woody Allen, but I only mean with his directorial style. Yeah. But much sure. like Woody Allen and like a Clint Eastwood, Good. gave very little direction for actors. So he trusted his actors. He, he trusted his actors, but see, this is the thing. So the thing that made that difficult in a movie like this is Moira Shearer is a dancer, right? She comes from the school of dance. She she's not an actress at this time. Yes. They hire her as a ballet dancer. She's never acted before in her life. And they're suddenly making her act in she's the lead in this, you know, I mean arguably the lead in this huge big budget movie and she's trying to get some sort of direction and Michael Powell just is not budging. Like he yeah. according to uh Marius Goring who plays Julian of course. Um he talked about how he managed to get through it because, like, you know, he had acted before, so it was a little bit more difficult. But he he would see Moira Shearer, like, in tears sometimes, just trying to get something out of Michael Powell mm-hmm. and just just could not, uh, could not get anything. In fact, one story is, and we'll talk about this scene later, but the final dressing room scene, mm. um, she didn't, she wasn't given anything, so she cried for real the first time they shot it, and they shot all the way through. With no cuts, they wanted to get let them go through the entire scene, and she cried, and it was messy, and tears were just coming out everywhere, yeah. and 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 then you know Michael Powell just simply goes cut, and then <laughs> walks up to the actors. Well, I guess we're gonna have to do that again, aren't we? Oh, ouch! So yeah, you asshole. Yeah, <laughs> a real <laughs> tough nut to crack. <laughs> oh, man, um, just and, tell and, me what you want, Michael. Tell me what you want. 
You want to go well, on a date? I mean, Is that what you want? And I mean, especially when you have someone, like I said, you have someone coming in with no basis of knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody, I mean, I, I get why they wanted dancers and it was smart to cast dancers because they look like real people. Like they look like, uh, they don't look like Hollywood actors from the forties. Like you can uh, tell like, uh, Victoria's got a little bit of a, you know, your teeth are not perfect, you know? And, and these guys, uh, that are the, the, the main like male ballet dancers are clearly real ballet dancers and mm-hmm. clearly, quite flamboyantly gay but not in a not being portrayed in a way that you would expect a a clearly coded gay character to be portrayed in a 40s movie it's not peter laurie you know yeah yes i am peter laurie no it's just it's just they're ballet dancers and that's what they are and those are their personalities it's right there on the screen and if you don't know it well oh we're not going to explain it to you basically <laughs> yeah exactly this is just how it is and that and that's it it's like that was is what a ballet company would look like at, you know at, at the time this movie is set and and so here's the thing so speaking of moira shearer she re she they they basically seek her out they gave her the screenplay and she says no like flat out no She's like, I, I think it's going to negatively impact my dancing. Uh, I'm not going to be able to leave for long. And I'm not going to be able to leave for that long and come back. And in fact, there there is one story of uh, Pressburger saying that despite her kind of saying that her, her dance instructor was the one who kind of pushed her to go do it. Um, Pressburger was saying that her, her dance instructor was very aloof about if she would be able to return or not. Like yeah. she'd say like, you know, once I shoot this movie, am I good to come back? Like, are we, are we just good to continue? And she kind of said, uh, well, we'll have to see what happens. That was according <laughs> to Pressburger. Moira Shearer says it was no problem whatsoever. Um, one of the directors thinks it was a little bit of a different situation. Mm-hmm. Apparently when she came back to dance too, they didn't really treat her the same way ever again as well, because Ballet instructors, a lot of ballet people, a lot of ballet fanatics don't care for this movie. Hmm. And I think we'll get to that reasoning when we get to the big centerpiece moment of this whole film. Yeah. Um, they, they were not OK. They were not happy with that. Uh, they also were yeah. a little worried about a movie kind of misrepresenting that world. Yeah. And, you know, because it's very like it's very like I don't know if you got the sense, but it's very like Hollywood producery, too. Yeah. Well, you know what? They need to shut their mouths because, you know what? They got black swans. So. They should be happy. (laughs) That was super accurate. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure it had to be completely accurate. Natalie Portman would have it no other way. Um, so she finally agreed to do it. Uh, she came on board, uh, and and apparently, uh, she was like the nicest person ever. You apparently everyone could tell she was not an actor just based on how nice she was. (laughs) Like, uh, Jack Cardiff, the cinematographer, who um, I believe he also did Black Narcissus. But he said yeah. that she would come up to him and just like, you want some tea? Like ask his assistant, you want some tea? I'm going to make some tea. And that he's like, no <laughs> actors do that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> On the flip side of that, you have uh, Anton Walbrook, who plays uh, Lermontov, the uh, the producer type guy. And apparently, and I don't know if this is him being method or if this was just his personality, but he was kind of aloof the whole time. Hmm. Um, barely ever spoke to his fellow cast members, uh, unless, uh, you know, unless he was in the scene. Um, and, and he was described as like, you know how you, you have a scene with actors and you're kind of like, oh, everyone's working with each other. Like everyone's playing off each other. Everyone's helping each other out in the scene. Hmm. He was very much a guy that's like, he's doing what he needs to do for him. And that's it. <laughs> yeah. Like but, he's I mean, not... it, it works. It works in this movie. That's for it, sure. It, it does. I'm just saying, I think that was his real personality. <laughs> Um, there's a story actually where uh, apparently, um, Marius Goring and 
uh, Moira Shearer were having like lunch with like the whole cast and he was there, but he wasn't talking to anyone. He walked by and he said something along the lines of like, well, we're doing it, aren't we? And that was it. <laughs> that was it. That was the, that Everybody was, was like, who's that guy? <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that was, that was the whole thing. Um, so there's a lot of interesting, I just thought I'd mention that because there's a lot of interesting backstage stuff going on at the same time while this movie's being made. It's, it's amazing, amazing that, that people that play pretend for a living can sometimes have such uh, stuck-up attitudes. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, actors, ballet dancers. So one of my favorite characters in this movie is uh, Grisha, the choreographer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm going to play this scene here where he kind of he greets Irina, the first dancer who uh, eventually gets fired for, you know, having a relationship. <laughs> and uh, then he then he kind of meets with Vicky. And I just I just love his like I mean, you won't see his physicality, obviously, uh, fair listeners, but we will. And you should be jealous of that. But yes. <laughs> you will kind of hear his uh, I think I just think his, he's hilarious. His delivery is great. Let's let's take a listen. And today she's only 43 minutes late. Am I supposed to congratulate myself on that? I tell you, Irina, my patience is at an end. This time I shall go to Lermontov and I shall explain to him how no teacher is big enough to hold both, you and me. I might as well start packing. Oh, there is no hurry after all. He might choose to dispense with my services. He is quite crazy enough. But if we go, we go to Kazer, Krisha, darling. Promise? Kuzka. Who are you? Victoria Page. I expect Mr. Lermontov has spoken to you about me. He's invited me to come here. Oh, this is too much. He invites them, I teach them. I get rid of them, he forgets them. And now, unhappy girl, will you please go to the far corner of the stage where you'll meet five other young ladies to whom Mr. Lermontov has also extended his hospitality. Interesting thing I noticed in the course of that, he, uh, she says, uh, where we go, we go together, which uh, coincidentally is also a QAnon slogan. <laughs> wow. Q so and there on. you go. Fuck they go back movie. to the red shoes. But yeah, I, I just really like his energy. Like he's very, that actor, uh, that's uh, Messine. His last name is Messine. What's his name here? Let me just take a look. Leon, Leonide Messine. And I'm butchering that name. But Leonid. He, he's, uh, he's very, he's very flamboyant. He's very charismatic. And he's definitely doing like a stage performance. If you watch Ooh. him. The way he's moving his arms around, the way he's like just almost floating. He's being very big. He's projecting himself as if he were on stage. And it works for this movie because, I mean, he, that's who he is. Yeah, exactly. And that's who he is in real life. So it's a really interesting dynamic there. I mean, and, and having been a theater kid for a good chunk of my life, you know, you, you see those sorts of people. They're just people that are naturally big and outgoing and they get involved in shit like that. And, uh, you know. It, it just it draws those sorts of people, myself included. And, you know, I, I do want to kind of complete that little uh, that little scene with a capper, a capper of a clip here, because when Irina, it, Irina gets basically told she's no longer needed because she become she is engaged. She announces she's engaged. And of course, Lermontov wants nothing to do with that because she's no longer got her mind 100 percent on dancing. Which, by the way, that just tells me right there that he—I don't think he wanted to bone Vicky because I don't think he wanted to bone Irina. Mm, and when he heard true. about that, he was like, "Okay, you're gone too." But Irina has her little farewell with Grisha, which I thought was really funny. I just want to play that as a as a kind of addition to that scene. 
Well, Irina, now you'll be able to sleep as long as you like and eat sweets all day and go to parties every night. And you, now you will be calm. The class will start on time. No more shouting, no more hysteria backstage, no more... No more, Irina. <laughs> so I like how they have that dynamic where it's like, he's always mad at her, she's always <laughs> treating everyone like shit, but like, they're going to miss each other. Yeah, yeah, they work together for a long time, they're going to miss each other. <laughs> uh, I, I, One little detail I noticed I liked early on was uh, when they sat down and they were... <laughs> They're in the audience, and then they pull out a bunch of sandwiches and stuff. There's like a little Chiron that appears at the bottom that says 45 minutes later. And I thought, that's got to be one of the earliest examples in film of using a Chiron like that, or just having that kind of like scroll thing scroll by at the bottom to indicate something. Yeah, because it goes by. Yeah, it's not. it doesn't just appear on screen, but it like it swings by, right? It's like a little, yeah, scrolls. Like a little scroll or whatever. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. I was like, whoa, 1948, holy shit. Some advanced film techniques there. Yeah, they must have got the old Final Cut Pro out. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's on punch cards. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So um, I don't know if you noticed this, too. And I think this they did this a lot in Black Narcissus, uh, Powell and Pressburger. But did you notice, like, even when they're not doing the ballet stuff, there's all the backdrops look like matte paintings. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, the one that really stood out to me is there's a scene where they're they're dancing in the ballroom. And the, I, in fact, well, I mean, really, it's during that ballet sequence, so I guess it's a little bit out there. But like the the curtains look like ladies, like the the folds of the curtains uh, uh, are such that they look like ladies in the uh, in each of them. It's really cool. It's yeah. a, this movie like it's this movie is so lush. Uh, I know I'm just repeating myself again, but goddamn, like the you're right. Every single background, everything is so clearly crafted, and it's it's gorgeous. But even when, like, even later on, when you see, like, uh, uh, Julian and Vicky in bed, and, of course, in separate beds, this is 1948. Yeah. Yes. Um, oh, <laughs> I laughed at that, too. <laughs> but uh, but but the background of the, the whole, their whole room, um, the background of it looks like a matte painting, too. Yeah, and the room feels like a stage. I thought she was going to start dancing at some point because it was very large. But then she got into bed and she put shoes on that had very high heels on them. And I thought, nope, not going to dance in those. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's just it it's crazy. And and even the scenes outside kind of have like a stagey feel to them. But I think it's it's very much intentional. Um, yeah. And it's very interesting because, I mean, we might as well talk about it now. That 15 minute ballet sequence has to be one of the best things I've ever seen. Oh, it's it's a fantastic sequence. It's uh, it's fascinating uh, and also quite um, cutting edge, I would say, for the time that the, with the number of like camera effects they do in the course of it. It's it's gorgeous, and this is one of the main reasons that the, uh, the they received some criticism from the uh, the the ballet fanatics. Yeah, I imagine, um, because they were tainting the purity of ballet. They weren't just showing a ballet performance. They were taking a ballet performance, and then they were doing all this weirdo special effects shit to it, mixing it up and, and not properly representing the work of all these hardworking dancing ladies and fellas. Well, and that's the that, and that's the main point of criticism here that comes from, you know, ballet dancers, professional ballet dancers and, ba and the ballet company, is that this 
Um, they felt it was kind of negating everything. Mm. Um, to the filmmaker's credit, I think what they're trying to do here for, and I and I mean, fifteen minutes straight. There's no cuts to like other scenes. This is nope. straight through. This is the whole performance. Minutes. Yeah, the whole performance. I think what they're trying to do is is show like what the dancers see. You know what I mean? Yeah. As they're acting through the scene, because I mean. We, we we see like these visual metaphors and like you know these crazy oh they, we even get like references to, to Vicky's own life things that have happened and things that are going to happen like she imagines the evil uh, shoemaker she sees him as Lermontov and as Julian at one well, point and, and I think it sort of calls back to earlier in the movie where where Julian is is mad about a scene and it's not looking the way it's supposed to or something and somebody's playing about it. he says the music will make the audience see. And I think that that's kind of the intent of that sequence is to show us what the music is supposed to show us, but more blatant because we're all stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and, and there's even like the thing where he said, like, just imagine you're a bird or you're like a cloud. And then she says, that's ridiculous. Then later during this whole ballet sequence, we actually see her jump in the air. And then we cut to like this image of birds in the sky. Mm. And it's just, I don't know, I, I just, this whole scene is an amazing accomplishment. Um, my favorite, my particular favorite part of this whole thing is when we have that, like, uh, humanoid newspaper man. Yeah. <laughs> when when the newspaper's, <laughs> yeah. like, floating around the ground, and then it becomes, like, a person that's, like, made up to look like a newspaper. I thought that was really cool. That was really, um, that was really strange, but yes, very cool. Uh, I like, there was one scene where... Um, the camera like twists in on her really in a weird like horror movie kind of way mm-hmm. that again I don't I don't really remember from this time outside of a couple of movies we've watched it looked really neat <laughs> yeah no and and I mean I think that's as far as the, the the previous movie we watched I don't know if this is a Powell and Pressburger thing that comes up a lot but I mean in Black Narcissist they had that quality too at times that horror mm. movie look right oh yeah especially near the end right oh yeah well yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> um yeah so and 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 what's interesting is um i just think it's, it's interesting because we get like we get foreshadowing for later things in the movie um like you said you get the the image of uh of julian and lermontov appearing as the de- demonic like shoemaker um, we get references to things that already happened. Like the newspaper is a reference to when she kind of saw that paper earlier when, it, uh, when she discovered that she got the part. Yes. Right. So there's a little yeah. like, there's a little like references to that too. Uh, oh, and, and, you know, you want to talk, we talk about this list. We talk about like influences and if this thing was truly influential and one of the biggest people that influenced was Martin Scorsese. Yeah. Martin Scorsese loves Powell and Pressburger. And I think this is like one of his favorite movies of all time. Um, he actually said that, believe it or not, something in this movie inspired Raging Bull. Huh. So what would that the be? Idea, well, the idea in this movie that kind of inspired Raging Bull is this whole ballet sequence. Because mm-hmm. during this entire 15-minute scene, we never cut to the audience. Mm-hmm. We never get that outsider perspective. We're kind of like in this the whole time, right? Yeah. And he, Martin Scorsese talked about like when he went to film Raging Bull, he got to the boxing scenes and he realized that he knew nothing about boxing. He said, yeah, I know nothing about boxing and I think boxing is extremely boring. Now I have to shoot these boxing scenes. What the fuck am I going to do? Hmm. And he kind of thought back to uh, the red shoes and how 
it wasn't so much about like, cause I mean, I don't, I'm not particularly into ballet. I'm not going to probably not going to go ever see a ballet, but nope. they made, they certainly made it interesting yep. in this whole thing by keeping you in there. And that's why in raging bull, those boxing scenes, you never cut to the audience. You're mm. always in the ring. You get this wonderful music that the choreography is fucking a phenomenal. And, and that's kind of how he decided to shoot it like that. Yeah. And actually, it, it, it kind of is prescient for the future because I think if ballet is to make a comeback, they're going to have to harness the power of the hologram. Ooh. Because imagine if you could do that red shoes thing, but then project like fucking holograms of fire and, and uh, water on the stage and, and all Nick that Cannon. sort of stuff. Yeah, Nick Cannon. Nick Cannon hosts the Red Shoe Diaries. <laughs> wait, wait a second, Jason. You're going back to that again. Yeah, David Duchovny and Nick Cannon together, just banging broads and driving cabs. <laughs> oh, my. Well, <clears throat> I do want to play this this bit here. So this is like it basically introduces one of the kind of reoccurring themes. So at the beginning of the movie, we mentioned that there's a performance. Uh, Julian is there in the audience and he realizes his stuff has been plagiarized, by the way, by his professor. Yes. Um, but after the performance, uh Lermontov meets uh, meets Vicky, and she's she's just she's just, she's a dancer for other productions, but she's not like a big name or anything. Yes, and is it, and this is after her aunt has been trying to force her uh, to not not really force her, but trying to get her in front of uh, uh, Lermontov's eyes so he can see her dance and, and which, have an which I, audition. Which I thought was coded as she as her saying like she'll sleep with you. That 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 definitely did come up in my mind. That, that, <laughs> it's like she'll do well, just, anything for this job. Well, just because she has the guy tell Lermontov she's a real patron of the arts <laughs> to convince him to finally go. So Lermontov goes to this party, and you know I can relate to. I, I mean, I can't relate to this, but I, I bet. <laughs> yeah. I bet. You no, know, no. Well, let me backtrack. I <laughs> oh yeah, you go to the party. Everybody's like, oh, Brandon, do that thing you're famous for, and you're no. like, no, no, it's not my. You know, it's not my thing. And you're like, no, they're like, do it. I can't personally relate to this, but I know <laughs> that many people who are like, you know, famous screenwriters, directors, actors, whatever, producers, um, when they go to a party, the last thing they want to see is an audition. Yes. And this basically this this aunt is like, you know, I want to I want to show you this audition. And I do want to play two scenes here. Um, this is her trying to uh, to to watch to get him to watch her niece dance. And I just I, I really like his uh, his demeanor here. Please don't get up, Mr. Lermontov. Now, are you prepared for a surprise? Do you mean a surprise, Lady Ness, nor a shock? Well... To take the plunge, I've asked my niece to dance for us tonight. What would you call that? A shock. <laughs> well, you're, you're certainly very candid. You know, Mr. Lermontov, I wouldn't dream of boring you with the performance of an amateur. My niece has been dancing leading roles for some time now. The critics think very highly of her work. How would you define ballet? Lady Neston? Well, one might call it the poetry of motion, perhaps, or... One might, but for me it is a great deal more. For me it is a religion. And one doesn't really care to see one's religion practiced in an atmosphere such as this. I hope you understand. 
attractive brute. I, I love how when he walks away, he doesn't even like kiss her hand fully. He just smells her knuckle. Yeah. <laughs> and then shortly after this scene, we have this uh, this this scene between him, Gene Lermontov, and Vicky. And I think this is very important to the to the film overall. I think this introduces a huge theme. Uh, so let's just play this as well. You know, at parties, everybody's supposed to be very happy. But perhaps you dislike them as much as I do. Still, as far as go, I think it might have been worse. Do you? Very nearly was a great deal worse. Oh? Thank you. We were, it appears, to be treated to a little dancing exhibition. But now I understand where to be spared that horror. Mr. Lermontov, I am that horror. It's a bit late for apologies, isn't it? Yes, a little late, I think. Well, the same, I'm sorry. I'm terribly sorry. But you're not sorry I didn't dance, are you? Oh. May I ask why? And because, my dear Miss... Uh, Miss Victoria Page. My dear Miss Page, if I accept an invitation to a party, I do not expect to find myself at an audition. Yes, you're quite right. Why do you want to dance? Why do you want to live? Well, I don't know exactly why, but uh, I must. That's my answer, too. And right there, he's like, she's perfect. That's the kind of girl I want in my company. Well, that's the thing, because like, her answer is definitely the answer he would give. Yes. Like I want to dance. Like if he if he was a dancer, I get the feeling like you know every actor has like a, a background they make for their own character. Yeah, I get the feeling that he wanted to be a dancer and he's like a failed dancer. But a good organizer and thus a great producer. Right, and I I get the feeling that uh, because he knows exactly how to do it, but maybe had like an injury or something. Mm. Um, that he, he projects has, that he, onto everyone. He has the will, but not the ability. So he wishes to foster those that have the same desire, the same fire, the same need, the hunger to dance. And and I mean, we should note right now, this character, I mean, definitely like, you know, a fresh kind of idea at the time. But I feel like this um, uh, Boris Lermontov has been done to, has been done in so many different ways, so many different movies now. Oh, I yeah. mean, as recent as uh, like Whiplash. With J.K. Yeah. Simmons, I mean a more much more aggressive type, obviously. But uh, uh, Andy Daly's famous character Don DeMello, uh, who likes making shows with the girls. Yeah, you get the girls out there, the dancing girls. Yeah, that that guy. <laughs> okay. Don DeMello. <laughs> that's that's my Don DeMello. It's not as good. <laughs> um, but it, it's definitely like this this whole story. I feel like is a fami- familiar one, but I think it's because it's been done in so many different ways since then. Mm. Yeah, it's a stock. It's kind of a stock character, but it's always interesting to see a different take on it or a different spin on it with a different actor. I I, I do want to say I think Anton Walbrook in this movie is kind of fantastic. Yeah, he is good. He's he's compelling. He's one of the most compelling things on the screen. Yeah. Um. But let's let's talk a little bit about the characters because we we talked a little bit about Grisha, but I mean we got to talk about our main people here. Mm. Um. Besides him, what do you think about the 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 romance between um? You know, between uh, Vicky and uh, our old pal Julian. 
I don't think that's the strongest point uh, part of the movie, but uh, you know, it it does what it has to do. I do like Marius scoring in this movie; he's great. But also, I don't really get a sense of a spark between them, mm-hmm. uh, uh, like in say in the previous movie we watched, a brief encounter between those two characters. But um, I do like that it is that they are a ginger couple, and it's nice to see gingers represented in movies, uh, even if in a couple form. You know, gingers don't have to marry other gingers. That's not they the don't. No. Oh. They 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 changed that law in 1991. Oh, well, a, right around the time the uh, only a couple of years after the wall came down. Interesting. That's right. That's right. I, I think they were connected, but uh, you'd have to tune into my late night radio show to truly hear the extent of that. I listen to Breitbart News. I know what you're saying. Exactly. Exactly. We're on the same page, brother. <laughs> Where oh, we no. go, we go together. Oh no, Jason's saying, brother, I'm scared. <laughs> but um. Yeah, I have I kind of have a theory about that too because I thought like I thought watching this movie I'm like well they didn't they didn't really kind of hint at it too much I mean they show them as being very contentious mm. um they have that argument like we like you said earlier about you know the whole idea of like music or or the actual dancing being the most important element of ballet and mm. and they do have a lot of arguments about that and then you know suddenly we get that which I think is a great reveal is when Lermontov goes to this massive party and those are the only two people not there. Um, and he finds out that they've been having an affair. I think it's because we mostly see this movie from Lermontov's perspective. I suppose, yeah. We, we yeah. I think we are as in the dark as he is for most of the film. And for a control freak like him, the, the anxiety he must feel at the idea that those two people are not there and that, yeah. and that they may be even together. Yeah. <laughs> Right. And, and I like, I like, I do like how, um, by the way, Moira Shearer is great in this too. Like I think for a first ever like performance in a yeah. film like this, that she's incredible. No, she's um, great. I, I would have never guessed that she was a first time actor watching yeah. this. And, and I think, and I think you met, like you mentioned like she's kind of a non-conventional, it's kind of an unconventional look for, you know, a leading lady at the time, but she is beautiful. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and you have Marius Goring, who just this, you know, golden locks <laughs> of blonde hair, which he had to dye, by the way. He was a redhead um, at the time. I was going to say, he looked like a redhead to me throughout the movie, despite the fact that he had blonde hair. It was like, no, no, this guy's a ginger. I can tell. Yeah, they wanted her to stick out a little more. Yeah, we can we, we can tell our own, Brendan. <laughs> I was going to I was going to mention that it's OK that you're saying that because you're also a ginger. <laughs> That's but then right. you said that. So we're good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I do that. I do think uh, Julian's whole story is, is kind of interesting because his thing is like when, is, when he's first given the red shoes to do um, mm. because Irina leaves the company and Lermontov wastes no time in quickly picking a different production. Right. When that girl gets fired and he picks the red shoes. And I think Julian is kind of disappointed. Well, because doesn't he initially he gives him like a, a play slash musical that already exists. And he's like, here, make a few tweaks to this. And yeah, exactly. He just goes and he makes these tweaks that he wants. And then eventually he's just like, you know what? Rewrite the whole thing. And he's like, here it is. It's already rewritten. Oh, he's elated <laughs> he's like, about that. Yeah. 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 He's like, I already did it. And he's because like, what he the orchestration? To, I'll get it tonight. To his, <laughs> he wants to do his own thing. Um, yeah. There's a really interesting reference to, uh, there's a really interesting take on plagiarism that uh, our old buddy Lermontov has too. Did you happen to catch yeah. that? Yeah, I did, and that was one of the lines that stood out in the movie. He says it, it's better so, to be stolen from than to be the one that has to resort to stealing. Yeah, 
So, and, and that's coming from the beginning of the movie, like we said, where Julian realizes his his whole musical or his all his music has been stolen by his professor. Yeah. And he writes a letter to Lermontov, but then feels like he should probably just take it back. But Lermontov yeah. has already read it. Yeah, and it's some, and it's kind of an embodiment of that uh, the power imbalance, maybe, in something like that, where you know he's a student and his professor is the professor. So there's a power imbalance there, and there's nothing much he can do at that point other than really just move on and try not to make that same mistake again. Uh, and, and Lermontov has such like a. His power dynamic is so interesting. You notice that anytime someone meets with him that he's not like super familiar with. So whether it's, you know, Vicky or, you know, Julian, um, it feels like he's performing within the performance. You know what I mean? Like mm. when he first meets Julian, he has this guy like serving him breakfast and yes. he has him like constantly shifting his plates for him and everything. Like, you know, just just constantly working. Uh, he's sitting there. Everything is being done for him. It's a it's a super it's a super like BDE power move. Mm, and he's wearing that weird like robe. <laughs> yeah, a very strange one piece robe that it looks very out of place. <laughs> Speaking of his costume too, it's interesting when Vicky when you know he catches uh, he finds out that Vicky and Julian are a thing. He obviously he fires Julian. Mm. And and then he but he does it in a way where it almost is it's almost like Julian quit. Yes, he he says, Oh, he'll be leaving the company, pay him his two weeks salary and whatever, and then send him yeah. on his way. Like, he gets him like mad first so that Julian wouldn't think it like more of it. But um it's interesting after that, and then of course like Vicky is like, Well, I'm going with Julian, I'm in love with him. When we see Lermontov distraught, he he's wearing a red coat. Yes. Like the same color as the shoes, a bright red coat. Mm, and that red is infecting his brain <laughs> and he does a really interesting uh it's really interesting because he hits the mirror he breaks the mirror and it's it's done i think as a reverse shot which is really interesting because mm. i think when you when you see him smash the mirror it almost looks like you know they filmed it starting off with the mirror already smashed and his fist there and then they just kind of went back hmm. interesting I, I think that's cool they didn't want to I, risk his poor little fist to a broken glass. I think they just want to give this whole thing like a, a weird, like dreamlike feel, which I think mm. a lot of scenes in this movie do have that feeling. Yes, absolutely. With this weird, with the strong colors and, and some of the camera techniques that are used. Actually, you know what? Now that I just thought of it, the whole thing that the with the ballet sequence becoming like a real life thing, it all, almost kind of reminds me of Olivier's Henry V. Yeah, exactly, where it's transitioning from, like, the stage to something more. Although in Henry V, it transitions to, like, actual, like, field photography. Um, whereas this, it's, like, it's it's enhanced. It's using these overlays and mattings to, uh, uh, you know, project in fire, water, whatever they're wanting to get across. Yeah, and um, I, 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 would, uh, I would be remiss... If I didn't play the uh, the the climactic scene in the dressing room, oh please um, do. We should note so at this point, you know, um, he go, Lermontov makes a move to get Vicky back. Um, interestingly, before that, he gets Irina back, and I really love the way they play with time there because mm. he's like, well, I guess I'm just gonna do a different play. Fuck the red shoes. We're doing something else. What's Irina doing? Have her meet me by chance. Don't set up a meeting. Have it yeah. be like you know, <laughs> uh, coincidence. Just Stalk her for a while, figure out her routine, tell me where she's going to be, and I'll just run into her. I mean, basically. Yeah. Well, that, um, and that seems to be his MO, because he kind of does something similar to uh, 
to Vicky when he when he runs into her at the train station. Although he does tell her that he knew she was coming. Yeah. Yeah. He does admit his stalkerness. Yes. <laughs> but he, yeah, so it's interesting what they do with time there is when he ends up meeting her, quote unquote, by chance, Irina, mm. uh, asks her to come back. And then suddenly we cut right from that to like her already performing with the company again. Yeah, it's like been it's, like a year. They've done like a tour already. Haven't yeah, they? yeah. And, and all they do is they kind of put like the, the various like stamps. Mm on the screen, like showing all the different places they've been to. I just thought that was really interesting that some scenes are like, you know, kind of played out like day by day by day. And then something like this is just like, boom, done four months later. <laughs> Time jump. Don't need it. We don't need to fuck around with this. We just need to exactly. move on. So yeah, I'll play this scene in, in the dressing room. This is when, uh, he managed to get Vicky back. He says it's just for one more night. Um, but of course we know his intentions and Julian has left his own play. His own, uh, his own, uh, I guess, is, is it a ballet that he's doing or it's opera, opera? Yeah, it's opera. Um, it's his, uh, it's his opera's opening night and he elects to leave because he wants to find Vicky um, to warn her, you know, don't, don't stick around. He will take over your entire life. Yes. And she's kind of forced to make a decision. You either want to love or you get the fuck out. And Lermontov makes it very clear that if she leaves, he will make sure she doesn't perform anywhere else. Well, and and and, bef- and before you play it though, and Julian also makes it clear that if she stays, he's he's not down for that. Well, I mean, I think I think if she stays, she can't be with him. Yeah. I mean, that's the yeah. thing, right? They can't have that long-term relationship like they could today. If he if if Lermontov finds out for one second that she's seeing anyone, he'll just fire her again. Yeah, exactly. So let's listen to this climactic scene in the dressing room. All the way down from London, I wondered if I'd find you here. And here you are. You left your first night? Yes. Julian. Why didn't you? <laughs> Lost, my friend. All right now, my sweetheart. There's a train going for Paris at 8 o'clock. We'll be on it together. Better hurry up and get changed. But I'm dancing tonight. Walk out. Good evening, Mr. Craster. Won't they be missing you at Covent Garden tonight? Monsieur Lermontov, il est moins dix. Oui, je sais. Oh, for God's sake, leave me alone, both of you. Please, Julian, wait until after the performance. It'll be too late, then. You are already too late, Mr. Craster. Tell him why you've left him. I haven't left him. Oh, yes, you have left him. Nobody can have two lives, and your life is dancing. Vicky, you can dance anywhere else in the whole world. Would you be satisfied with anything less than the best? If you would, you would never be a great artist. Perhaps you never will. And would you make her a great dancer as well? Never. Why do you think I've waited day after day since you sent her away from me for a chance to win her back? Because you're jealous of her. Yes, I am. But in a way that you will never understand. Give my sake. Monsieur Lermontov, faut-il tenir le rideau? Wait! Well, Vicky? I love you, Julian. Nobody but you. <laughs> but you love that more. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> If you go with him now, I will never take you back. Never! Vicky, 
Do you want to destroy our love? Adolescent nonsense. All right, go then. Go with him. Be a faithful housewife. The crowd of screaming children and finish with dancing forever. It's wild. It's wild. And then what happens, Brendan? The What happens next is under some contention, I've, I've, I'm led to believe. Hmm. Um, because there, there are a couple of different theories about this. But it, as the movie finishes, uh, hmm. she, you know, she finally decides to, she does decide to go with dancing. And as she's walking down the hallway, we cut to a close-up of the red shoes. And then suddenly her face, as she has this moment of realization, mm-hmm. she goes running out of the out of the hall, over to the ledge, and then jumps in front of a train. Damn. Um, and, and, you know, dies. Yeah. Well, eventually. And, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, I mean, it appears to, you know anyone as a suicide but yeah there's a lot of theories that like because of the whole like this movie kind of has like a magical realism thing going like there's there's stuff in this movie that you know it, it almost feels like there's something else going on like within the within um sorry outside the idea of like logic you know what i mean like there's there's just some there's just some weird dreamlike aspect to some of this movie and a lot of people including martin scorsese by the way has said that he believes that that is legitimately the red shoes taking over her. Hmm. Hmm. And we've had, we've had hints at it throughout the movie. I don't know personally. I think it's a big leap. Uh, not, uh, no, no pun intended. <laughs> I think it's a big leap for her to suddenly become suicidal yeah. at this, at this moment. So, I mean, I kind of like see a little bit of validity in that, in that. Perhaps it was simply a reflection of the filmmaker's attitudes that this girl was so frail and, and, and just fragile in her in her personality that she couldn't she couldn't make a proper decision. So it was just a question of jumping in front of the train and solving her problem in one grand gesture. Well, and and think about this, too. A lot of people have said, like, you know, what she uh, the, the whole thing with Lermontov, that's like, you know, the evil side of of that. Some mm. people have said though, they they believe that whole thing that that thing is bullshit. Is that yeah. is that both guys are kind of evil in a way? Yeah. Is that they're they're both kind of dragging her in in different directions. And this vulnerable person, you know, this vulnerable young lady who you know kind of gets thrusted into show business. Mm. And, and it's you know it 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 has some similarities to a lot of like actors in real well, life. And it's. And I imagine and it's sort of an embodiment of, a, of, you know, the problem that women have had in the past, that the idea that you can't both have a career and then also have a relationship that you have to choose between one of them and, and that that's a choice that you have to stick with, you know? Yeah. And, 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 and I, th- I think this movie is aware enough that it doesn't fall into like the whole like, oh, it's an old movie. So it's misogynistic saying mm-hmm. a woman can't have both. I think mm-hmm. it's aware enough of that, of that idea that it's kind of it's kind of commenting on that. See, if this movie was made today, the red shoes would have taken her away, and then she would have run to a bank and gotten a loan and started her own uh, dance company and put the both of the fuckers out of business. <laughs> That's true. That's and how I'd would, remake this one. And then, and then you would have a music cue of like, oh, I feel good. No, it would basically be the end of Saint Trinian's, but but in this movie. 
It'd be like a big red party. shoes, red <laughs> shoes, baby. Right. I don't know why I'm making her sing like the B-52s, by the way. <laughs> red shoes, baby. <laughs> red shoes on the jukebox, baby. Uh, but yeah, she she um she gets she dies. Um, what what's interesting too, and I think this ties into the whole theory of people that think it has something to do with the shoes themselves, is that much like the source material, much like the the ballet or the, the, you know, the play, the story, whatever she asks Julian to take the shoes off her feet as she lays there dying. And she, and he does. And that's the last shot I believe we see in the movie, but we are not, we, we, we should definitely also play this one last clip. Um, mm-hmm. This is, uh, I think this is like kind of Lermontov as a very broken man. Yeah. Um, having to go in front of the stage and basically announce that, you know, she's she will not be performing anymore. She will not, obviously, because, you know, she has passed. And he kind of stutters and stammers his way well, through this speech. But, but he says he's he first he says she will not be performing tonight or or ever again or something like that. Or, or she will not be able to ever again. Yeah. And then everybody gasps because <laughs> they know what he means at that point. Well, and I want to I want to play this, and then I want to ask you what you think because I have a couple of like opposite ideas of this, and I want to see where you fall. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry to tell you that Miss Page is unable. To dance tonight. Nor indeed any other night. Nevertheless, we've decided to present the red shoes. So and then that ends with we see a little bit of the of the ballet starting and she is represented simply by the spotlight that would have followed her. Yeah. yeah. And, and and they're and, doing all the other same motions. Yeah, they they do the whole play without her in her role. So my question is this, Jason. Yeah. Do you think this is genuine this speech? You mean on his part? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. because he's so it's he's so clearly broken up compared to any other time we've seen him in the movie. He actually is expressing some emotion. You can hear his voice breaking like he doesn't have the same consistent timber that he normally would. He's right. clearly fucked up by this. Uh, and I believe it. I believe that, that, you know, at the end of the day, he did care about her and, and, and her position within his company. And 
even if it's selfish, it's a big blow uh, to him and to his life. There's part of me that, okay, I will I will take that side if we go with the idea that he sees himself in her and that a part of him has died because I don't think there's a non-selfish bone in his body. Yeah. So yeah, I think no, maybe no, he mourns for part of himself. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that's certainly possible, but but his mourning is genuine, and whether that's for himself or whether that's for Vicky, I mean, we could argue all day, but I think the I think there is genuine emotion there about what has happened, and whether and that may just be because he knows he can never put on the red shoes again in the same way because he doesn't have the actress to do it. My question too is like. Because you see things like this in real life where someone passes – like a celebrity passes away, right? Mm. And and we hear like a memorial and and sometimes you hear someone – talk, another celebrity talk about them or whatever. And you're just like, that doesn't sound the least bit genuine. And yeah. I mean this does sound like a genuine moment, but I'm, a part of me is like how much is performance? Yeah. Well, I mean that's the thing. We can't see into the, into his heart. We can only see how he projects himself. And I think that like I say, something is genuine there. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think I think it can definitely be debated, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I found the th- thing I was looking for earlier, actually, um, because we were talking about how uh, this this one this one actual uh, this one film scholar actually saw both kind of male characters here as kind of evil. Mm. Um, her name is Adrian Mc- McLean, and she says that Victoria quote seems pushed by those she loves who would rather possess her than support her. And that the film ultimately illustrates the impact of ruthless personalities that, uh, on the weaker or more demure. Mm. Which was a problem that women would have had, especially at that time and earlier, and still do to some extent. Yeah, so that's her takeaway. It's interesting that uh, you know some people see Julian as maybe not uh, a great guy either. But I think well, th- you know, that was the impression that I got by the end of it. Like he he became possessive in a way that was not appealing to me. Um, and that I would not want to act like that in any situation. And I guess Marius Goring um, had apparently rewritten a lot of this final scene, hmm. uh, this scene in the dressing room, because when Pressburger, Pressburger wrote it, uh, he actually says in the commentary track, he says, Pressburger seemed to let his emotions get the better, ha- get the, get the better of him. And it came out a little sloppy. It came out a little sentimental, hmm. overly sentimental. Goring also had the idea to wear something black in that final scene as he wears that jacket. Um, mm-hmm. al- almost as if to tell the the viewers that it's almost like it looks like he was preparing to go to a funeral. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that's he's interesting. In, he's in a different kind of headspace than he was in the previous times we've seen him. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I like that little those little bits. Hmm. Um, I think just overall, this is interesting that the whole Red Shoes story itself is kind of a metaphor for this whole movie. Yeah. The shoes, the shoes make her dance. Yeah. And though she doesn't want to do it anymore, she can't resist the allure of the shoes, aka the dancing. Mm. And she has to return. Um, she'll also she also literally dances until she dies because yeah. she picks dancing over her relationship. And then, of course, as we said, as she dies there um, on you know on the rail tracks, she has Julian remove the shoes, and then she finally is like let goes let lets go and dies. She is at peace. She is at peace, and it's a very dark and, and kind of unexpected ending. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, did you also notice this is the second um, of, of the two that we've done? This is the also the both Powell and Pressburger films have ended with somebody falling off a great distance. Oh God, is Colonel Blimp gonna kill himself too? 
That nun was evil, though, so... Yes, she deserved it, yeah. yeah. Take that, I mean, Sister Rose. <laughs> I think you're thinking of the Wicker Man. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, Jason, before we get into our kind of, like, opinion, obviously, on this movie and everything like that, is there any other notes you want to make uh, regarding this film? Uh, the, there was a scene in the, uh, I believe, in the ballet that was at the circus that very strongly reminded me of a 60s Batman episode. Just the way the sets look... Uh, uh, and the way, like the makeup and everything, looked like the henchman of a uh, uh, of like a Batman villain from the '60s. Are we talking about the uh, the quick clips of some of the other ballets they're doing? That might be it. Like where where uh, Massine is doing that thing where she's like she's like a robot and he's like putting oil in her and stuff. Yeah, it may have been in one of those clips, too. But it was in the movie. But anyways, yeah, some of the, like, just the look of this movie is so colorful. It really did remind me of a lot of, like, 60s color TV shit. Like, because it was the same thing where they had all these colors now, and God damn it, they were going to use them. And we ended up with stuff like Batman and Star Trek in the 60s. We ended up with stuff like Black Narcissus and uh, the Red Shoes and Henry V in the 40s. Yeah, I'd say, man, you just listed, like, probably the third most... The three most colorful films we've talked about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> damn. Oh, I mean, Wicker Man was pretty colorful, too. That's true. <laughs> Especially those costumes, eh? And the, yeah. And the, and the, like, animal heads and shit. Yeah. <laughs> the bees! Is that your next note? Bees! I like bees. Um, No, I don't. Uh, Yeah, no, put on the red shoes, Vicky. Just put them back on. I just noted that line. But, yeah, so, yeah, that's that's what I got. Okay, um, let's let's move on. Let's talk about uh, awards season. Ooh, because this movie, my friend, does go to the Oscars. Hooray! It is it wins two awards and is nominated for three. Uh, mm-hmm. The ones that it is nominated for and does not win uh, are include uh, best editing, mm-hmm. which goes to a movie that we, of course, are giant fans of and that we know and talk about in our everyday life all the time, uh, called The Naked City. Oh yeah, classic. Sure, why not? Um, it is nominated for best motion picture story, which was kind of like a, also like a screenwriting credit <laughs> or a screenwriting By the Oscar. Way, uh, the Naked City sounds like a movie I would have read it when I was twelve, and then been severely disappointed when I watched it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they could do much nudity in 1948. <laughs> but it loses best motion picture story to a movie called The Search, and think. it is also nominated for best picture. But it lost it lost to a movie that we've already talked about on this podcast, and we actually just mentioned a few minutes ago, and that was Laurence Olivier's Hamlet. Yeah. Oh, actually, it's we ha- didn't mention that. We mentioned Henry V. My bad. Yeah. Well, we was- lost to the black and white Hamlet. Yeah, I lost to Hamlet, 1948, Damn. Laurence Olivier. Damn it. <laughs> that was a tough one. I like um, this better than Hamlet. Uh, considerably. Uh, it wins two Oscars, Jason. Oh. What do you think? Uh well, best cinematography obviously. No. And best costumes? Wrong on both accounts, kind of. Damn. It wins best art direction. Okay. Fair and enough. best and best original score. Oh, okay. Um right. and and then at the BAFTAs, it is nominated for one one award. It's nominated for best British film and loses to a movie called The Fallen Idol. Hmm. This movie, uh, the budget of this movie was just over 500,000 pounds and it didn't do amazing in the UK. I think it became like the sixth most popular movie of the year, 
but yeah. it's it made more than five million dollars in the United States. Well, that's good. It must have made would have made back its money then. I'm sure. Oh yeah, it was a it was a bigger deal in the U.S. Um, so on its uh, upon its initial release in the U.K., uh, the film again, like I said, was kind of a low earning movie. Um, cause the rank organization couldn't afford to spend too much on promoting it due to some financial issues from the expense of a movie called Caesar and Cleopatra. What is it with Cleopatra movies? I was running studios out of money. It's just, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know. You, you think it, you think it would just having Elizabeth Taylor would be enough, but, uh, I guess it's just the very subject matter. And also according to, uh, Michael Powell, the rank organization didn't see much in this movie. They were kind of like, eh, it's, it's whatever. I don't know. I don't know if they're they had their eyes taped shut while they were watching <laughs> it, but um, that kind of led to the re- end of the relationship between Powell and Pressburger and the Rank organi- Organization. And they started working for Alexander Corda, who was hmm. a major producer at the time. Um, yeah, the movie t- the movie did really well in the United States, and of course we talked about the main point of contention in this movie was a perceived lack of realism in respect to the ballet sequences. Um, but you know. Get over yourselves, ballet people. Yeah. Okay. It yeah. wasn't meant to be like <laughs> documentary. <laughs> that's right. Go watch Black Swan, assholes. Yeah, because that's more of a documentary. That's right. That's right. Docudrama. <laughs> um, but yeah, so fuck the red shoes. Probably one of the most ambitious movies we've watched so far. Certainly. Jason, what are you saying? Uh this I, I put this at the same category that i put black narcissist this is a fantastically beautiful movie with some great performances uh this is a movie that i probably would never have watched had i not been doing this list and i doubt i'll ever watch it again but it was quite a fascinating thing to see and like i say lush beautiful just stunning just just a treat for the eyes this whole movie um but but Brief Encounter has become my like new like gold standard for an old movie just like really like hitting me at the core and this doesn't quite live up to that but I still enjoyed myself watching this and it's it's definitely worth a worth a watch no question there's a reason it's number 9 on the list mm-hmm. I will uh, I watched this 3 times <laughs> yes you did I watched it twice and I watched it once with commentary um I will agree with you though. I don't think it's the best one out of this out of this batch that we watched so far. I think Brief Encounter still holds that place in my heart, mm. um, and I think maybe even uh, may, maybe maybe one other movie, but I'm not sure yet. But it does it does rank high for me. Um, again, I also agree with you. I can definitely see why it's in the top ten yes. at number nine. Um, it's it's a fascinating movie. It's a oh, yeah. beautiful movie. The acting in this movie is uh, is fantastic, especially when you consider that you have all these people or a good deal of people who had never acted before. Mm. Uh, Powell and Pressburger are maniacs for undertaking this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, just can you just imagine something <sighs> on this scale in 1948? Like, that's Having insanity. to wrangle, wrangle uh, the, the, the cast they needed to wrangle for those ballet scenes and, and get it all shot, you know, in, in time and on the amount of film that they had available to them. Like, yeah, well, it's, and the it's funny, nuts. We didn't really mention it, but like when they found out that they, they I mean, they figured out they had to get ballet extras, obviously. Yeah. Um, by the end of it, they basically hired an entire ballet company. Like they didn't, yeah. they, they was just kind of happened. And then they were like, oh shit, we just, we just hired, had to hire like 120 people. Um, so they had to deal with that. And, you know, ballet dancers, they're used to what they rehearse. And then once they get out there, it's done and done. There's no second takes, right? Yeah. So, you just go out and do it. 
it took – I know I'm just mentioning this late, but it took six weeks to shoot that ballet sequence. Oh, man. That Those must have been some long fucking days. Yeah, that one 15 minutes of film took six weeks to shoot. And the ballet dancer said it's the, one of the hardest things they've ever done in their life because they're doing, like, what, four steps, cut, four steps, cut. You know what I mean? There's no, like, there's no run-through of the whole thing. It's impossible. Hmm. So I think that's interesting that they were able to get through that. And then the entire shoot took 23 weeks when it was supposed to take 15. Uh, so they went over budget, but they still made a ton of money. Uh, but can you, like, they went two months overtime. That's crazy. Two months overtime. And to think that a quarter of that time was spent on 15 minutes of the movie. But you know what? It was one of those things that it ended up being worth it because oh, it was, it was, we're talking about this movie 75 years after the fact. So, Jason, I guess. Uh... So, I mean, I guess we're, I, I know we, we, uh, our, our opinion varied a little bit in uh, terms of magnitude, but I think we both agree it, it should probably be on this list. Oh yeah. There's no question. There's no question in some form. It's gotta be. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah. we'll check it out at your local video store that you can't go to right now for many reasons. <laughs> well, maybe by the time this airs, you can go in, you just gotta, there can only be about five people in the, in the VHS store at a time. That's right. So you'll want to pick up uh, as many tapes as you can handle so you don't have to come back that often. That's right. Let's move on. We talked about the red shoes. It's time to uh, it's time to find out what movie we are going to talk about next week, Jason. Ooh, okay. So normally we roll dice. And That's we find what we like out, to do. Yeah. We find out which number on the BFI Top 100 that we are going to do next. Unfortunately... Jason has a severe distrust of me. Um, That's right. Ever since I accidentally uh, ran over his child. Well, you know, that was my only one. And I haven't been able to find another one since. And I tell you, I've tried. I've grabbed I, a few, but they always they always get home. Listen, Jason, I don't know why you just refer to your... I don't know why you don't just let me say I ran over your weed. I don't know why your weed has to be your child all the time, but... It's like a child to me, and like a child, I smoke it just a little bit at a time. That is unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that at all. <laughs> well, you just chew on that while we talk about the next movie we're going to watch. Yeah, because instead of rolling the dice and getting a number on the BFI Top 100 and then doing that movie that associates with that number, I have compiled the remaining films that we have not talked about yet, and we are going to do this randomizer on this shifty website brought to you by commentpicker.com all right jason you give me the go ahead and i will i will shake up this randomizer all right uh, i will count it down and say go and then you will go ready okay three two one go here we go what's it gonna be what's it gonna be The, the remains, remains of the day. Okay, the remains of the day. This is Anthony Hopkins, nineteen ninety-two, yes. I believe. Nineteen ninety-three. Oh, I was close. Uh, yeah, directed by James Ivory, uh, based on is... a Japanese novel. Is it actually? Well, I think it's by a Japanese novelist. Oh, okay. Well, this is number sixty-four on the uh, BFI Top One Hundred. So finally, we are out of the top ten. <laughs> I feel like this is a movie that I learned about from The Simpsons, possibly, at one point. I'm sure it was referred to uh, by name. 
Is this the Anthony Hopkins Emma Thompson film? I'm not sure. I think he's a butler in it, though. He's yes. Like, he's like, or, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 So we've got kind of a uh, potentially stuffy British movie coming up from the 90s. Oh, yes. But, uh, but I, my wife might like this one. This sounds like this would be right up her alley. Hey, you know what? I think I think we might like it. I think we're going to like it. Yeah, well, I mean, I love Anthony Hopkins. I mean, uh, I'm excited to see him in anything. So so that's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about the film The Remains of the Day. But for now, uh, you can find us on Facebook. Just search for For Screen and Country. You can find us on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. You can find Jason on Twitter. At Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. And just read his tweets and let him dance his way into your heart. I occasionally will retweet funny people that you may also find funny. Uh, but only funny I, I, dancers, right? The, the, I got to tell you, the one thing I, I retweeted recently I thought was really funny. So JetBlue was uh, uh, doing a thing in New York to celebrate the um, uh, healthcare workers. So they flew three commercial planes over Manhattan. And Mike Schmidt retweeted that that tweet and then tweeted uh, – uh, and in and in uh, Oklahoma City, they're going to drive three trucks full of fertilizer by the federal building in salute to the healthcare workers, and they're going to park them in the basement. So maintain social distancing if you go see it. <laughs> <laughs> Made me laugh really hard. Oh, what it sounds like a wonderful time. Oh yeah. So All yeah, right. I guess uh, I guess until then, until next week, I just have to say to you, God save the queen. God save the screen. For Screaming Country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Dance! Dance! Don't stop dancing! Clock strikes upon the hour And the sun begins to